The first images from the James Webb Space Telescope are here, and they are already transforming our view of the universe. When we built the observatory, we said we were going to hunt for those very first galaxies and the first stars, and there's no dang good picture of how it's supposed to be. You really do not know what something's going to look like until you see it. You have all your numbers and all your predictions, and we just cannot simulate what we're going to see before we see it. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with John Mather, Senior Project Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm Corey S. Powell. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST for short, can't help but make notable discoveries pretty much everywhere it looks. That's because its capabilities go far beyond those of any previous telescope. For example, JWST's mirror collects six times as much light as the mirror of the Hubble Space Telescope, and its infrared detectors are much more sensitive than any other space-based observatory, allowing scientists to peer through cosmic dust and to see the dimmest light from the early universe. This summer, 2022, NASA and the European Space Agency released some of the first images taken by JWST. They are exquisite and somewhat unexpected. Comparing them with pictures taken by the Hubble Space Telescope revealed a number of surprises. So I spoke with John Mather about the images and about what he sees when looking at them. Mather is a Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist and senior project scientist for JWST at NASA. Here's our interview, which has been edited for length and for clarity. You saw these images a while before the rest of the world did. About three or four days. Oh, that's less of a while than I would have expected. We were in a great rush to get them out, and we had to make sure they were right. So they were chosen partly because you knew they would make spectacular images to sort of show the public what the telescope can do. To me, the big surprise was really how beautiful they are. But they also presumably told you a bit about what the telescope can do and how the telescope is doing. And from your perspective, what did they tell you? Well, I guess the number one thing is the telescope is working perfectly as we hoped it would be, and maybe even better in many areas. And number two, the universe has cooperated with our wishes by giving us beautiful things to take pictures of. So one thing that did pleasantly surprise me was that the telescope's optical performance is a lot better than we required it to be, which means our engineers planned with the possibility of failure in mind. So what if we mess up and it's not as good as we planned? And they didn't make those mistakes, and it is actually a lot better. So when we said we were going to be building a telescope that was what astronomers call diffraction limited at uh, two microns wavelength, and we got about 1.1 microns, or 1.2, depending on how stable it's been this week. So we are thrilled. It means the pictures we get, even that the wavelengths that overlap with Hubble, are better than Hubble could do. So... I knew the telescope was working well. We knew that a uh, pretty long time ago. What we didn't know is what does the universe look like? So when we built the observatory, we said we were going to hunt for those very first galaxies and the first stars. And there's no dang good picture of how it's supposed to be. You really do not know what something's going to look like until you see it. You have all your numbers and all your predictions, and we just cannot simulate what we're going to see before we see it. Right. It's just not possible. On those specific images, maybe let's start with the Carina Nebula, because there's a lot going on there. Yeah, That part of the sky has been imaged many times before, but you're seeing it at a resolution and a wavelength sensitivity that you haven't really seen before. 
What do we see here that we couldn't see or what intrigued you about that image? Well, generically, we see what we expect. But maybe I should describe the picture a little bit. In the top half of the picture, you see some really bright new stars. They were born in that nebula not very long ago. And so why do we see them? Because they're bright and hot and they're able to actually burn holes in the nebula. So what does that mean? It means they are producing so much energy that they can vaporize all the dust grains around them and actually even turn the plasma, which is ionized. And so it's suddenly we can see right straight through to them. There are some of them behind the cloud, but mostly the ones that we see are above the cloud. The ones behind the cloud are a lot of them still obscured by the dust. And there are a few that are just being born inside the cloud, which we can see now better than we ever could see before. There are hundreds of them that are being born now. There are some of them are going to be those really incredibly bright, beautiful blue ones, but they haven't popped out yet. It takes a while for a birth to occur. So how long does a stellar birth require? Gestation is uh, unknown, but anyway, the final stages last mm, a few million years, maybe, including uh, building up a disk of planet, uh, forming material and turning them into planets and all that. So that's one of the things that intrigues us about this picture, because we can now track down all these hundreds of future stars with their planetary disks and study them. Mm -hmm. um, in the cloud, there are some features that I've been shown that I can't really describe very well, which are sort of startling in their appearance. There's one that uh, you probably saw yourself. It looks like a, a sort of tube that comes up and bends over and goes down again. And I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> So it's just one of those things nature does until we find out more. Is that potentially a, a magnetic structure? Yeah, quite likely. Uh, magnetic fields do control an awful lot of motion in astronomy because interstellar gas, like the sun, is electrically conductive. So that means a magnetic field can push on it. Right. Anyway, so magnetic fields make a huge difference to how the stars are born. The Carina picture tells us, by the way, that even though I've been telling people for years that we'd be able to see inside those clouds, uh, well, only sort of. The places where the stars are being born are still very opaque. Mm -hmm. So only the very longest wavelengths can go around the dust grains. Yeah, so I'd love to contrast you know, what you can see in that image versus what you could see in the earlier Hubble image because of you know, both the light gathering and the wavelength range that Webb is seeing. Yeah. So the, the big difference is um, dust is more opaque for the shorter wavelengths. And it's so opaque that you can't see inside at all. Now with the infrared, especially the long wavelength infrared, we can see this hundreds of new stars being born. So after you know you're there, of course, you'll try all your other tools. So the other tools astronomers have include uh, radio telescopes. The radio waves do go right through the dust clouds, but they also don't show you what the dust is. So we need both kinds. The radio waves will show us um, the molecules that are in there, some of them. But then you say, well, what are they doing? And, and then you end up with a very complicated story to tell. Uh, so eventually we have to get a story that matches all the everything that we know. And so people have been working on star formation ever since I was a college student. And it's still mysterious because you can't see it. Right. Let's, let's switch direction to the southern ring. Have you seen the slider tool that shows the image of Hubble on the left and the web on the right? Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. So anyway, you can pretty quickly see um, one important difference, which is that the infrared picture shows you that the star in the middle is actually double. So 
the one that the one that blew up or is blowing up or sending its material back out into space is mostly hidden by dust grains but you can see them see that star with the infrared and you couldn't see it before the other sort of startling thing about this picture is how incredibly much detail there is in the shapes of things because all these wonderful curly cues tell us something about how the material moves through space. So when I ran that slider and looked at the Hubble and JWST images side by side, I was struck there's so much more intricate detail in the JWST image. And clearly it's not just because, I mean, the spatial resolution is maybe marginally better, but but clearly you're just, you're seeing different things. What are you seeing in the web image that's adding all that texture and complexity? Well, I think we're seeing that the material that's been expelled has very tiny structures that it's, um, well, just think of the sun. You look at the sun and you say, oh, how lovely. It's a nice round disc. You get your telescope out and you say, no, it's not. It's got holes in it. It's got mm, sunspots. It's got uh, a corona, which comes out in threads. And once in a while, it has eruptions. And none of those are simple and smooth. They all are threaded with magnetic fields. So this is um, just nature is basically complex all the time. And it's showing us that when we get the more detailed pictures. So what is controlling that? I don't think we're ready to tell you why it's got such a filamentary structure. My guess would be it's uh, um, magnetic fields. But we'll see what the experts tell us. Just in terms of the kinds of things that you would see at those wavelengths, are those somewhat cooler molecules or are those potentially dust structures or what might we be looking at? I think what you're seeing there is mostly dust, but we also have filters that we can tune up to particular kinds of molecules. And one of them is called PAH, which stands for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. It's a lot like uh, smelly solvents that you have around the house or something. So they're complicated molecules, and a lot of them seem to have the emission at around the same wavelength, even though they have different shapes. So you can tune up your filter and say, take me an image of where all those molecules are. And so this tells us something. Uh, what is really going on in the chemistry out there is still pretty mysterious. Are the molecules formed on the surfaces of dust grains? Mm -hmm. Do the molecules become dust grains? Anyway, space has got the most astonishing chemistry going on, which surprised people completely because what's going on? Why would molecules form out there? How could they form? Why aren't they immediately destroyed? And so people are still working on it, but they can be catalytically, they can be formed on the surfaces of dust grains. Okay, hydrogen, carbon, all other things, they stick to a dust grain. They have some kind of clever reaction that only nature knows about. And then something kicks them off again, and they come back into outer, inter, interstellar space. And we can pick them up uh, with our equipment. So this is a wonderfully complex story that uh, actually has relevance to us, uh, because those that affects the history of how does the carbon and the oxygen and other things that we're made of get to a future generation of planets. All that chemistry is tricky. And so some, well, for instance, carbon, oxygen, and the like are, tend to be volatile. So it's easy to, for them to leave a future planet, uh, while other things like silicon are, uh, and their compounds are not so volatile. They'll, right. they'll settle in, and you have a 
little rocky planet made out of silicon and iron and the like. So then you say, well, how come we have carbon enough right here on the surface to have life? That's an interesting challenge and a lot relates to this interstellar chemistry question. Um, it's not like we're getting the actual molecules of life from interstellar chemistry, even though um, it's pretty amazing what can form out there. Um, but it, it certainly controls what arrives here on planet Earth at the time that we need some carbon. So I guess what I'm really hoping is that uh, better pictures and better detail give us a better concept for what's actually happening out there. I'm impressed by beauty, but I want to know what's going on. And that will be even more beautiful. <laughs> when you first saw those images, you knew in some pretty great detail what to expect. But expectations and seeing are kind of different things. And look what we saw. They are so beautiful. Um, it tells us we did well. And the next generation of telescope that we're supposed to build, according to the National Academy, is possible. And uh, always thinking about the future, we're not just sitting around. We are in the business of inventing new observatories. And it's not just me, of course. Uh, the National Academy told us what they want us to build but it's gonna take us a while. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time and, and for always leaving me with another reason to be optimistic. Oh yeah, there's so much more to do and it's not always impossibly difficult. That was John Mather speaking with me about the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. You can see the images for yourself, compare them with the images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope and read my article about how those images are already transforming our view of the universe. The article is titled, Pulling Back the Cosmic Veil, and you'll find it in the September-October 2022 issue of American Scientist. Or you can find it online at www.americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was edited and produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Corey S. Powell. Thank you for joining us. May all of your skies be starry. Starry.